Today I'm talking to Jim Morris, whose career focus has been helping clients discover products that they're going to love prior to sinking a lot of time and investment dollars into its development and marketing. Jim Morris is a discovery coach in the San Francisco Bay Area, and you can read more about him in the show notes. I'm really happy that Jim is going to share some of his strategies and tools for product discovery with us. I want to start by saying that uh, this is a really, really exciting area for me uh, to, to learn more about. This is the area of product discovery. And the person that really connected us together is uh, Marty Kagan. And one of the reasons I really like Marty and his approach so much is that he really challenges this, this notion that, you know, agile product development has all the answers. How do we discover products that customers are really going to like and that they're really going to enjoy using. So that's why we're on the phone with you because you were referred uh, to me by Marty as a discovery coach and uh, we connected last week. So now we have a chance to talk together. So welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Great. Great. So, uh, so Jim, uh, let's go ahead and get started on the first question I had for you. Maybe just give us some background. How did you get involved in technology? And maybe you can tell us like the earliest project that you worked on that, that got you started in all this. Sure. I mean, I think uh, it all started with an introduction class at Stanford in computer science. And in the final assignment, I remember staying up all night long. And I was there the next morning and my, my classmates in my dorm were sort of looking at me funny for having stayed up all night. And I just, I loved it. And I fell in love with software and, and turned that into a major. And then after graduation, um, I went to an early startup and, and again, had a, a very intense 30 days. And, and the first project was, um, was making web postcards where you would kind of write text onto an image and then people could send that image to their friends. And, and it was really, um, it was challenging to write text on an image. You had to go find some library to do it. But the client loved it. And then the client's users, it was a travel company. And they would sort of send these postcards around to each other. And um, I think that was, that was a lot of fun. And that, and that quick instant gratification of, of having a 30-day project, getting it launched, um, was really satisfying. Um, so that was that was definitely one of my most memorable early early projects. Yeah, and uh, have you seen that kind of a thing? That project that you worked on, have you seen that kind of mature into a full on product over the years? Yeah. So one of the um, the early companies I worked at was a company called Fogdog.com, mm-hmm. and we sold sporting goods online. But before we sold sporting goods online, we did websites, and the website business wasn't panning out, and so we had to pivot to e-commerce. Mm-hmm. And during that pivot. We had about five weeks and um, had about five software engineers, and we all banded together, and we created a, 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 an e-commerce system to bill users, email them, uh, add to cart, everything you would imagine e-commerce in about five weeks, kind of, again, long days, and we pivoted and, and relaunched ourselves as fogdog.com, and um, that company ended up going public in 1999, and um, we ended up merging with, with one of our competitors and, and kind of had the, the corner on the sporting goods market, I should say, for, for online sales before Amazon got into it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so that product lasted quite a long time um, and was, uh, had a, a, like a virtual warehousing system where we would send orders um, directly to manufacturers who would ship directly to consumers. And so we were using the Internet to avoid storing a treadmill in a warehouse. We could just as easily ship that treadmill from the manufacturer to the user and kind of taught a lot of these manufacturers how to do it. We had to teach them how to use um, secure software so they could, you know, have user data and not, um, you know, and treat it, uh, treat it well. So, uh, so yeah, that was, that was a really interesting time to build a lot of those tools before nowadays they're more commonly available. Yeah. So how did you, so let's get dive into this whole product discovery is, uh, you know, how did you discover what it is that was going to do well in the market? You know, do you have some go-to techniques that help you with that? Yeah, I think the, 
the, the, one of the ways I discovered discovery was doing it wrong for many years and, and just trying to build software and hope that users really like it. Hmm. And I think that hope part was the, the part that I, as an engineer, you know, it wasn't to me, I could build things and my teams could build things. I didn't realize how much time I was wasting and how I was really hoping it would work. And I, I didn't actually have any confidence that users would use it. In fact, lots of software we built never really got used that much. And hmm. so I think the, the most useful technique is to get an idea in front of your target user or some form of your target user as soon as you can. Mm -hmm. and, and this is something that Marty teaches and feels strongly about. And it's something you can find in a lean startup where um, Eric Reese is really he's thinking about how could I have gotten these learnings faster? Why did it take me six months to figure out that I wanted to do this? I could have actually done it you know, built uh, one chat system instead of six chat systems is one mm -hmm. of his big examples. And I think that's where I constantly think, how could I do this faster? So the technique is really that uh, build that prototype, a clickable set of screens, whether it's a web page or maybe um, an app or tappable. And then you get that in front of users. And as long as it looks professional enough, it doesn't have to have all the functionality you can get that reaction from users. Hmm. And if the reaction is really meh, then you should go back to the drawing board. You shouldn't be building products where the users are, are not excited. And so, and, and again, this is different than usability, which is usually what most people associate with user testing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so uh, that's actually something that you know resonates with a lot of developers, right? This whole notion that I already know exactly what the customer wants. All I got to do is build it and build it really well and high performance. And then as soon as I get it out there, I'll have thousands of users. It's going to go viral. Uh, and then they come to find out. I mean, I think we've all been there. We come to find out, actually, there's one guy interested in it, and he's looking at it just because he's interested in how I did it so he can rip it off or something like that. <laughs> um, yeah, you're, you're super users. You're super competitor, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's, I think, a, a common uh, a common thing that the trap that developers fall into. I've, I've certainly been there. Um, now, as, and that, I think that's one of the reasons Eric Reese's book has been so popular, right? Everybody reads that and says, yeah, yeah, I've been there. I've been where Eric was at. And, um, you know, the company was well-funded. Uh, it was a great growing market. All the things looked right. And yet it flopped, right? Because we waited way too long to launch the product to get that first user feedback. Uh, now, I'm just curious, the example you gave of, of putting a web page in front of a user and, and so forth. Um, how long did it take you to actually code that up and, and get it in front of them? Was it, was it weeks? Was it months? Yeah. The, the goal, if you read the, the sprint book by Google ventures is to do that in a day. So <laughs> in one day, so typically, typically very fast. Mm -hmm. um, and what you're doing is not making web page per se, is that you're making uh, a, a picture you can sometimes you can just screenshot your existing website, swap a few buttons or pieces of text, um, and, and if you're a, a coder like me, you you do it in HTML and then you take the screenshot because I'm better in HTML than I am in Photoshop. Mm -hmm. So you pick your tool of choice, and you think, well, how fast can I do this? And, and users aren't um, you're not looking for the usability, meaning the button doesn't necessarily have to be perfect. You just need to use the button to be there. Um, and so if you're trying to offer a chat service instead of a uh, you know, a phone service and you want to put a button there and just see if anybody will click it. Um, you know, you could certainly do this in a fake scenario where um, you take some of your existing users and bring them in and you just sort of say, you know, how would you contact, you know, customer service on this site? And you could just see what they do. And so again, these lightweight concepts can get you there much faster. I mean, some people will be aggressive and even just change the button on their website and it just goes to a page that says this feature coming soon. Mm -hmm. uh, and they call this the, you know, the 404 test mm -hmm. 404 after the HTML error. And so I think the, the idea is not to wait weeks and months. Uh, my teams will typically do in a week what they were previously doing in four or five weeks. So it's mm -hmm. a four or five X challenge and speed up. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the, one of the, 
pushbacks I get um, when I offer that, um, even though I, I got to admit, I personally haven't done the, you know, the hands-on discovery that you're talking about, but I certainly offer it up as an advice, as advice to, to folks that are trying to do discovery. Uh, but the pushback I get is, you know, if we do that, uh, it's it, it's not going to be robust enough and it'll make it look like we're not professionals, right? Because it doesn't have all the error handling. It doesn't have all the, the scalability things inside of it. Uh, and somehow our reputation will be marred. Right. And that's where we do have um, a variety of levels of testing. And so uh, in the beginning, we're doing more control testing. We're, we're sitting down with users in, you know, say, five years, and the expectation is not that they're going to be able to, to do some, do their banking transaction or something similar. The expectation is that we set, a, we set the, the mindset for the user that they're going to do some kind of transaction and we're going to see how far they get and which choices they make and to let us know whether they've, they think a certain feature is valuable versus another feature. And so it's uh, in, that, in that time period, you can get that reaction from the user and what you save yourself doing is that robustness, the reliability, the scalability, the, the failover, the security. Um, you're not really accepting any data, so you're not necessarily working on working with privacy issues, although some user tests do involve some data, and you can, you can blank that out. And so the key here is how can I get feedback from the user before having to build all of the um, – you know, that extra part of the software that actually may not be needed in the end if the user never uses the feature. Mm -hmm. So we'll use a controlled environment. When we get to a more live data testing environment, um, then what I tell my, my, my clients who are in the live testing with, with real users, this is after they've done some validation, is you're going to make sure that it's reliable and secure and, and you're going to, um, you know, QA it and it's going to be bug-free um, but it's not going to be fully functional. And so the idea is that instead of trying to build everything or build the menu, it could be times where the user has to call you to resolve an issue if you need to get a product out that has got live data. Uh, so you have to make these choices about where you want, um, how you can get something to market quickly and, and what corners you can cut. And what I find is that users are, um, business users are much more like consumers. And so if we're all like consumers, we want, uh, websites that work well, but we will get through things that aren't perfect. You know, I see users click through apps all the time that, that aren't very clean. I see people using sites like Amazon and eBay that have just incredible amounts of information and finding what they need fairly quickly. And so I think um, users are really resilient to, to what you put in front of them as long as you're giving them value. Mm -hmm. And that's where the value is, is, is actually more important nowadays because people's attention span is taken up by so many things. And so if you provide something that's valuable, you know, in fact, I often tell users, hey, can you help us out? You know, this is a new area and users are often willing to give their time for very little money or for free to, to go through new areas of sites and to give feedback. And so I think users are, are less, um, they're more concerned about brands wanting their feedback than providing a perfect uh, uh, face to the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, this uh, thing I want to talk about is agile development, right? This is kind of the area that I've been in for the last 20 years or so. And, you know, that I think the understanding that we had in this, in this community early on was that uh, this was going to be a, a way of doing, a way of thinking and a way of doing that was actually going to speed things up, was going to speed up delivery. But really what it's turned into is it's about building and delivering software, but it's not necessarily about coming up with the most valuable product ideas. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, Marty will, I think he said in one of his, wrote in his early books that the actual time to product market fit when you've got the software that actually solves the need could be very similar, even though you have agile engineering, because you still have a raw idea that needs to be baked. Mm -hmm. And that baking process through agile development and in, in, in every two week cycle or continuous integration cycle is, you know, you still have to wait for the software to get out there. And so, you know, by adding discovery before you do any engineering, 
uh, you can shorten the amount of engineering cycles. And, and, and Marty believes, and we all believe, that you can get to that product market fit sooner by adding discovery to your successful agile development. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like engineering in an agile world is still kind of under underrated, like the amount of heavy lifting that's involved, even if you're doing everything in an agile development fashion, you're doing things iteratively, you've got your, you know, daily standups and all those things that that agile uh, prescribes, it's still a lot of heavy lifting that could take a lot of time. Yeah, so the 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 issue with, um, like I said, the important thing about discovery is it brings the engineers, and, and this people may see this as having more time impact on the engineers, but it brings them back into the ideation cycle. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in the long run, it's meant to save you time getting to the product market fit where the, the software is right to solve the problem that the customer has. But um, in terms of that time commitment, what we're looking for is to, to bring some engineers, some lead engineers into that discovery process. And that provides um, ideally more context to the discovery team. So when they bring you know, ideas to the engineers, they're more baked and it actually saves them time as they go through and say, well, product manager, you didn't think about this idea well enough. Here's these various issues that we've got with the idea. And I find that a lot of engineers are forced to make a ton of decisions while they're doing their delivery mm -hmm. and, and creation of the software. And a lot of that's just through product teams that haven't thought through all of the various cases. And actually, during discovery, when you go to users, you, you get smarter product teams, smarter product managers about their, their ideas. And so the ideas come much more cleanly to engineers actually saving them time. So mm -hmm. the investment in discovery has... Um, ramifications of saving you time and, and making fewer decisions on the business side. Of course, you've got to make the technical decisions on how to deliver it um, well, but uh, you know, you can get frustrated if the ideas aren't as well thought out. So uh, Jim, if we want to kind of put this into an agile context, right? So if I've got, um, you know, if I've got a, a backlog, right, of, of features that, that I want to build, um, how would I go about doing this discovery? So let's say, let's say I've got a team of, say, nine people, right, it's in my Agile team, um, and I want to do discovery and delivery as well. Um, what, are, what are some of the, the techniques I would go about using for that? Yeah, so in, in the beginning, it's a little bit of extra work because you've got to get um, pull some ideas out and start doing discovery on them while you've given sort of uh, high quality work to the engineers. And so the product managers in the beginning and the designers have to work double hard because they have to give, you have to have good quality work for them and for the engineers to do now. And then you have to sort of be working on that next wave of even higher quality. So work. is that, so, is that like doing a, a what, what we've been calling spikes? Is it different than spikes? The engineers, um, as they peel off some time to be part of the discovery group, might feel like a spike. Spike can be more for, hey, let me take a, a cycle here to figure out, uh, to explore some different technical avenues. In discovery, it's almost like spikes again and again and again for ideas. Mm. So yeah, it, it, we're going to take the, the, the big learnings from Agile, which is to do things faster and iteratively and apply that to ideas. I mean, discovery is really Agile development for your ideas. Mm -hmm. And it uses the designer as the engineer. And the nice thing about discovery is that the engineer gets to be more, um, doesn't have to do necessarily the execution of discovery. They're not building the clickable prototypes necessarily. They are putting in the input about, hey, is this feasible? Meaning, can our platform do this? And they get to put in the input, that innovative input, like, hey, there's a whole better way to do this. There's new technology. And that's really the most important part is that companies that that don't bring the engineers into that discovery process may not know that they can solve problems in a totally different way. Mm -hmm. uh, we know users cannot envision the solution. Um, the, the users can really just explain the problems to us. And, and you know, some of the few people in our development cycle that can are the engineers who are close to the technology. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. In, yeah. in the beginning, it's a little bit like uh, rubbing your tummy and patting your head uh, mm -hmm. while you get discovery up and going. And, and so you're going to peel a couple ideas off your backlog. Uh, you can start 
with one, if you'd like. I mean, there's, there's ways to sort of refine your ideas, but one way is just to peel an idea off and instead of building it, go see if we should build it. And it's an existential question. You really shouldn't put an idea into discovery unless you're willing to kill that idea. Mm. I mean, yeah. discovery will make every idea better because you're going to think more about the fringe cases and you're going to put it in front of users. But the highest form of discovery is really, should we do this idea? And it's an existential question for product managers who might have CEOs or clients that are breathing down their necks. Mm -hmm. Now, do you find that there's a cross-functional team uh, that's got maybe the skills to do discovery? Or is it, do you find that just one engineer is, is enough for this? Typically, um, I'll think of a discovery team as a core, and this is um, very much from Marty Kagan, is a product manager, uh, a user experience designer uh, who can make high-quality visuals, and uh, a lead engineer. What I like, and a lead engineer um, can be, doesn't necessarily have to be the lead of the engineers. It could be uh, uh, an engineer that, that is more business-minded or wants to be a part of it. Not every engineer wants to be a part of discovery. Um, as long as they can represent whether it's feasible or not, and they can go back to their team to find that out. Mm. What I would add is it's a very interesting element to discovery would be a data analyst or data scientist um, and a subject matter expert. So, it could be a client success manager who knows uh, a subset of the market really well or a marketing person or um, someone in your organization that may not be involved in building software but really knows the subject matter of the organization really well. And so the subject matter expert and the data analyst, data scientist are, are great ads to, to a discovery team. Hmm. And does this team run on sprints? They will typically run, it's, it's, it's like a sprint in the sense that they want to take an idea in and out of discovery and they want to apply consistent processes to it so that they get a clean yes validation or no invalidation. It doesn't have to necessarily be on the same cadence as Agile. Mm. Yeah, because it seems like you could have gaps, right? Like, for instance, you might put together a prototype and you say, okay, we want uh, user validation or something, but that there might be a gap of two weeks or, or some, you know, length of time where, uh, you know, you might, you might not get immediate feedback because you're dealing with somebody outside of your team. Does that, does that happen sometimes? Yes, yes. You have, to, you have to have a lot of discovery. If you're going to kill ideas... You can't just wait, you can't time the end of discovery on an idea to, to coincide with the beginning of a sprint on that idea. Because mm. if you kill that idea, you've got nothing for the engineers to do. And so that's why in the beginning of discovery, you've got to put a couple ideas through and, and you have to really get ahead and you have to have what I call um, shovel-ready projects. And those are things that have already passed through discovery uh, that you've gotten evidence from users that they want. Mm. And so as you accumulate shovel-ready projects, you start to take that, that tension of having to approve or validate an idea and discovery that you don't want to because mm. you've got shovel-ready stuff for the engineers. And so it, it does take several weeks to get ahead of right. the engineers. Right, like almost bootstrap. Yes. It's, it's like a, you know, kind of like a sprint zero, but maybe an extended um, time where you're validating and at that stage it sounds like you kind of need a small core team that's like a designer product manager and an engineer that's doing all of this work this kind of a startup work and and getting ideas validated um so that you can get you know you, you pass that go no go po po you know point in your product life cycle and say, okay, we're, we've got enough validation. We're going to go, or we're going to actually pivot before you bring in other engineers. Because what I've found, Jim, is that once you pass that point of, yes, we're going to build this, like we're going to build it, you know, we're going to deliver this product. That's when you really start burning cash, right? Cause now you've got maybe seven or eight highly paid uh, people on your team that are building stuff. And, and at that point, you really need to have a good idea that, you know, once you build this, there are going to be buyers. Yeah. So the larger, as you, as you think about feature enhancements to features, to products, 
to an entire business, your discovery cycle is much longer. Uh, you know, and, and a prime example of this would be when we were starting, I started a company called Power Reviews mm-hmm. with uh, three others, and it was product review software for online retailers. And uh, we, we, the two of us engineers, um, in kind of a discovery mode, uh, basically said we would not build any software until we had thought through the software and we had sort of tested uh, our concepts with some users, mm-hmm. some clients. And so that, that initial drive to build software right away, you want to get to a confidence level. And so for an entire company, that could be a couple months. Mm-hmm. For an entire product, that might be four or six weeks of discovery. For a feature, it might be less. And for, for an enhancement to a feature, it could be a couple of days. And so, yes, the, the, the confidence you need to put eight fully staffed engineers onto a project for what you think might be four to eight to 12 weeks you know, that's going to be, that kind of confidence is going to be more like four to six weeks of discovery, multiple mm-hmm. rounds with users and prototypes. Yeah. So yeah, it's, you, you, and the confidence is really, um, it's something that you learn. So you might say, well, when, when do I, when should I feel confident? You know, a lot of us, when you, when you look at business, are optimists or pessimists and our level of confidence is, is totally different in something. Uh, we might believe in something, but we're really, we're looking for evidence to support that confidence. Mm-hmm. And do you find, so then the discovery team, because, you know, the, the number, the, the kinds of features, the kinds of things, you, the problems you want to solve are, are going to continue. So is that discovery team, would you say it's always like four to six weeks ahead of the delivery team? Yeah, ideally it's, it's four to six weeks ahead. Um, and again, for the, for the engineer, the lead engineer or on that team, it's not a full-time job. It's going to be... Um, you know, bits and pieces here and there. Mm. Um, so it, it's not as much as, hey, I'm going to pull an engineer out of, out of delivery um, in that sense. There are a couple examples where teams have decided that the discovery is so important and it requires a little bit more technical help, meaning they want to build prototypes that are a little bit more interactive. Um, and you can think of uh, Android app developers, iPhone app developers, um, maybe the onboarding flow for... Uh, a, a website, things where you've got three or four pages and, and really it might behoove you to do some, some value testing on live software or a live website. So like a front end developer could be involved in that. So there are times when it becomes more full time and that's the commitment of a company in, in, in specific circumstances, but it typically is less time for, for a given engineer on a discovery team than the designer and the product manager who should be full time. Mm-hmm. And do you find this to be more useful for, um, you know, UI centric applications versus more sort of the, um, like, let's just say more SOA or, you know, API driven, uh, UI less applications? No, I, I do believe it applies broadly. And, and a great example of an API is when you read that documentation and you see the endpoints, why not build the documentation? Uh, we all dislike documentation, but in the engineering world, we have at least created API documentation for, for other people. Um, and why not create that documentation first and have a JavaScript or, or another backend developer look at that, read through it, and envision how that person would make an application based on your API and, and let you know how they feel about it. And what I find is that developers are savvy enough about reading APIs and they've used enough APIs at this point that they can get pretty good feedback just on documentation of endpoints. Hmm. Um, and, and looking at example of uh, uh, output and, uh, you know, an input, whether it's JSON or XML or whatnot, you know, if they look at some examples and then if you wanted to actually mock up a backend for this, you could sort of say, look, here are three products or three services that you can query and you can make a really dumb version of the API and see if the person can use it. Mm. And each stage you haven't had to spin up multiple, you know, Amazon servers and build the robustness and the security. And you know, you've gotten that great early feedback from the developer. Like, well, I'm not really even using that part of your platform. I really want to access to this. I want to paginate, not sort. I want to sort and paginate where's both of these things when I'm thinking about sort of e-commerce APIs, but Mm -hmm. You know, that's the feedback when you think of discovery as um, a conversation piece. You're at a, a, a dinner party 
and it might be that centerpiece of the table. It could be a coffee table book. There's something you've got to start the conversation with to get to what's really on people's mind. And that's this discovery prototype. It, it can be a conduit to your user. And let's say that you made an API, you didn't even talk to or even seek to find users of that API. So part of discovery just has the muscle of making teams actually get out there and find people who would actually use this API. Mm-hmm. And once they find those people, you, if your idea is 100% the same, uh, before you found and talked to these people and after, I would c- consider that extremely rare. And so just that exercise of finding those users and exposing them to that API documentation would go uh, a huge distance to saving you time and building that API in the end. So no, I think it's for non-UI and actually for business users. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of business user testing. Um, I've done uh, testing with sensitive data or in regulated areas. So sometimes um, you have to mock up data, but again, you're looking for that reaction to a feature or a concept. And, and I really challenge teams to, to give me a scenario when I can't do it mm-hmm. to save them time. So one of the things I've run into, uh, Jim, is the business users are really busy. And when they see that you're, you're just trying to test something with them, their, their reaction is, you know what? Why don't you why don't you involve me once you've already finished the product, and then I'll give you feedback. Do you ever get that kind yeah, of response? Yeah, absolutely. And, and then there, you'll also get on the opposite side of that spectrum. You'll get really intense users who, now that they've opened a line of communication with you, can't 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 close it, and, and they pump you for for features and information and they become almost demanding. And I think demanding is fine. We all want software to work better. It's a complicated concept to create and make for our given situations. But as a business, you have to balance things. And and so the, what you need to do is play a numbers game. It's very simple. You have a pipeline in sales. You need a pipeline for your test users. Hmm. And so the, the pipeline um, for your test users is I would meet with clients uh, and prospects. I'd meet with two a week and I'd have my entire leadership team meet with two a week. In that situation, I met a hundred clients in one year and that we were able to develop 15% of our clients into folks who would actively test and use um, early software that wasn't released to the public. You have to, as a, uh, as a team, be able to show concepts to people. And even when you've got something that's validated with business users, feature flagging is one of the key engineering aspects that unlocks that next set of discovery where you're testing with 1% of your users or 20 of your users, however your business works. Mm-hmm. And so the feature flag turns on features. Wow. And so there's, there's a continuum after discovery into, into that release cycle because um, again, discovery is not a hundred percent guarantee of any piece of software, mm-hmm. and so that's where. Um, so anyway, so so yeah, I would say it's a numbers game, it's a pipeline game. You need to talk to enough clients, um, and I I've been in uh, you know B two B B two C. I've been in, in government and, and in regulated spaces, and you will find people that are really interesting. And what you want to find people is that that they're interested in that domain and that business. Um, not necessarily interested in you building that custom feature for them. And so you have to weed out people that are, aren't interested and you have to weed out people that are perhaps too self-interested. Hmm. Find that happy medium. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it seems like um, the, the thing I want to talk about next with you, Jim, is you've been in this area of discovery coaching and uh, it seems like this is a uh, kind of an emerging area where I think, you know, if you go on LinkedIn, for instance, and you search for an agile coach, I mean, it's like it's like searching for software engineer, right? There's millions of, of people that say they're agile coaches. Um, I don't see many people saying that they're discovery coaches. Why do you think that right. is? I think it's a very new term that Marty Kagan is bringing to the market. Hmm. Um, and I think that it's also not every company calls it discovery. So I think a lot of people are 
are working inside their companies to fix that idea ideation that that getting ideas ready for for engineering kind of process uh, it might be uh, in the user research group it might be in the marketing group um, so I think it just has a bunch of different names so I think there's a lot of people doing the work probably fewer than agile coaches mm-hmm. um, but I think it's it's a naming convention concept and um, I think Mar- what Marty really wanted to do is, is popularize this concept and call it discovery. And, and really with the coaches, it's, it has to do with after you've learned about how discovery is important, um, you know, many teams lack the actual skills and, and techniques to do it. And mm-hmm. so they're searching on the internet. And so the, the discovery coach, just like an agile coach, can accelerate that self-research um, phase and, and it can shortcut uh, mistakes with with kind of bringing the the learnings to the table up front. Yeah, absolutely. And um, now the other thing I was going to ask you is how how is this received with engineers? Do they like having a discovery coach? Do they find that it saves? Because I put myself in the in the shoes of an engineer that builds a very very robust uh, feature set, and and then they do a lot of testing a lot of usability testing, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, load testing and all of the kind of rigor that's involved with, uh, with engineering. And then the whole product is canceled because they either ran out of money or, you know, they just, uh, there wasn't enough interest. So I would think that, that engineers would really embrace a discovery coach. Is, do you find that to be the case? Uh, yes. And, and, and I would say there's a, uh, a, a little bit of a no there in the sense that in the beginning, it, you know, it could be one more meeting to attend. Mm. And I think that, that can be a, a downside of it. Once it gets going, though, and you realize that this meeting is what helps determine what you'll be working on a couple of weeks from now, and, and you realize that there's going to be a, a critical thinking process into selecting which ideas get worked on and which don't, you realize that that's one of those meetings you really want to be a part of. It's, it's not about which idea am I doing first and how long does it take? It's whether we do something at all. And that's very empowering for engineers. And so once they get through the first meeting or two and they realize that they're much further upstream than they're used to being, um, they love it. And then when they, and usually this is sort of by, you know, by volunteering is they can actually facilitate the user test themselves. And so I'll educate an engineer, a designer, anybody, you know, I educate everybody on how to actually run user tests and how to, how to, how to structure your questions so that you're getting a value answer, not just a usability answer. And engineers are, um, they, they understand that difference, uh, between value and usability, um, and because a lot of engineering tools are, are, are not usable at all. They're quite difficult to use, whether it's APIs or documentation or, or open source libraries. And so, but they will, they will go after the things that are valuable that save them time and save the company time and, and are efficient. And so, so yeah, I think in the, um, there's generally interest in it. It can be another meeting. And, but then once they realize, okay, you know, these meetings are efficient and then the activities that I do in terms of participating in the user testing, where I actually meet users, and then a lot of times you see them use the software that you've created, um, can be very humbling. You know, there were engineers in an onsite, we were at a, a school, and it turns out the Wi-Fi at, at this school location wasn't that great, and that the app they had built didn't uh, respond well to low bandwidth or interrupted bandwidth. Hmm. And so they were literally starting to code at the school itself, they brought their laptop and they were thinking, well, oh my gosh, I've got to make this more resilient to this spotty Wi-Fi. Because of course, at their office, as a tech startup, they've got great Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. And so, so there are these fringe benefits. Not only do you get to know your users and you get to decide on the ideas, but then you feel this empathy for the users as they might struggle through the software. And then you see the environmental factors and you think, wow, I can make a direct impact and make, in this case, teachers' lives um, you know, much better. And that to an engineer, at least from my point of view as, a, as an engineer myself, is very, um, is very empowering and, and goes beyond kind of, you know, all the other aspects of, of the job. Yeah. You know, you, you, you said something there that really resonated with me is, uh, you know, when you went to the, to, 
you know, when you when you used it in the customer scenario, you realize things that you hadn't thought of before, like low bandwidth. Uh, and I think that happens a lot, right? So we're we're we make certain assumptions that there's going to be decent bandwidth, uh, and and then we find that we find that gee, you know, this one operation, you know, when I was trying to log in, uh, the the whole screen went silent, like everything just f- seemed to freeze. And then you realize, you know what? It's probably best to put a splash screen or something saying, you know, connecting to a database or something, uh, because in low bandwidth situation, exactly, yep. that's going to really confuse the user. Like, what the heck's going on, right? Even if it's for two seconds. Yeah, yeah. they'll see it as broken. They'll see other concepts, and 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 of course, there's nothing worse than than when you think your software is being perceived as broken. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. Yeah, and. I think these are these are the kind of things that are gems, right? This is where you know in consumer software, right? There's you you can actually go out and you know put your software maybe out there and help people, you know, kind of ask the general public for help or use it and and, and look at the data. But when you're looking at enterprise software, um, you know, I think that that's where you know it's kind of easy to find users, but it's also you might you might be in a regulated regulated industry where uh, you know the the data is like you mentioned sometimes very very secretly guarded. Um, now, do you find that there's certain environments where discovery is more difficult because of these kind of constraints? Yeah, I mean, and, and some of these are are policy decisions by the company themselves. There, mm. um, I've come across companies who aren't allowed to talk to their own users. Mm. And so we'll, um, we'll go find what I call proxy users and we'll, we'll ask these similar questions and we'll show prototypes. And so the idea is you can, um, you can screen folks on, on Craigslist, um, and try to find your target users. Sometimes user testing can fill up with, uh, retired folks or unemployed folks or college students. And so, do you need to kind of move beyond um, you need to move beyond those target users if you're, you know, to, to get as close as you can, but you can do it. And I think, um, so in the regulated environments, you may not be able to talk to your own users. Um, you can generally ask them questions. Uh, or sh- you want to ask them what they would do. Cause that, that can be tricky, but you do want to show them examples and have them work through situations and see how they react. Reactions mm-hmm. are, of course, much more valuable than sort of what people will tell you they would do in a situation. So we have proxy users, we make up realistic uh, scenarios, and we show them as realistic of, a, of an application or, or software or service um, that we can, and we kind of go from there. And even in these situations that are regulated, um, you are getting some feedback, and, and as long as you do it quickly, you're able to do that faster than you would with traditional means, such as building the software and, and waiting until you're done um, to show it to folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, you know, what about the tools? What kind of tools do you use? Um, you know, you mentioned you you use a tool of your choice, like you mentioned HTML, but are there tools that are built for this kind of discovery, like for prototyping and, you know, uh, creating quick sort of mock-ups and collecting data and so forth. Yep. There are two tools that come to mind. One is InVision, I-N-V-I-S-I-O-N. And InVision um, is, uh, we've used it mostly with apps on um, Android and team. And they make a really nice explanation of the product to the executive team and to the sales and marketing teams because you're no longer paging through PowerPoints and having people imagine what the software does. They can actually use it, him or herself, to imagine what the software does. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. At, so it's very powerful, not just for testing, but for, for the whole company. Right, right. So Marty used a term I hadn't heard before. Uh, he said this is, um, this is a prototype as spec. Yes. You know, so so that instead of reading a big spec on what it is they should build, it's like, hey, here's a prototype, 
and it's got everything in it, not everything, but it's got a lot of what would be, you know, like 80% of what would be in a spec is much, much more easier to understand as a, as a working prototype. And, and then of course, you know, the business rules and the specifics and everything like that, they do need documentation, but much of that you could even, if it's in the code, you could open up the code and, and see it in there too. I thought that was a really interesting concept. Uh, now, it sounds like, though, that to be a discovery coach um, and a discovery, I, I would say discovery developer, I don't know if that's a term, it, this does require a skill set. This isn't something that, you know, uh, just any any engineer could easily pick up. Is that is that the case? I mean, when you when you work with people that, that use Envision and uh, Axure and is this is this a skill set that they've developed over several years? This is the the one the person on the discovery team that's building the prototypes um, does. I, I often want that to be the discover the, the designer for that team because hmm. um, again you're going to be doing this on a regular basis. And so in in, in the sprint book by Google Ventures and, and other design sprints, you'll see that the whole team kind of constructs the prototype. Mm-hmm. Um, whether they're writing the copy or they're, they're creating the survey or they're creating the image assets and then someone else is tying them together. So you can definitely um, swarm on a, on a rapid prototype. Um, but I find that on an ongoing basis, having a designer who knows Envision or Axure or can do it in HTML, CSS or, or some other tool, you know, you find that tool of choice that works. And so at each client I go to, there's someone who knows one of these prototyping um, tools or has done some prototyping in, in a certain language. Mm-hmm. Um, that person, you, as you build on that skill set, it becomes faster and faster. And so, mm-hmm. yes, that's the skill of, there's the skill of just making it. And so sometimes I bring that person into the engagement if, if companies don't have it because they, again, seeing and doing is believing. And if they don't have the designer and haven't done it before, how do they ever start that engine? And so I have designers I bring in the rest of the skills I can generally educate and coach teams on from user testing to survey creation to what questions are we asking, how to structure the prototype, storyboarding, things like that. But typically the creation of the prototype, um, we have an expert do that. Mm-hmm. I, but you can swarm on it. And that's, you'll see that a lot in books and, and websites. Yeah, no, that sounds, that sounds really cool. Now, as far as people that are interested in getting into this you know, discovery coaching what uh, what books are there that you would recommend? Sure. So uh, there's a book uh, simply titled Sprint um, by Jake Knapp, who's uh, part of Google Ventures, K-N-A-P-P. And it's, the, it's one of the few books that's solely about discovery, where you're, you're trying to develop an idea. It's, it's a prescribed one-week process. It's so prescribed that he has a time clock they uses and their sessions of certain lengths. Um, I've heavily modified that. Most people heavily modified, even people within Google, they do more of a three day design sprint. Um, but the, the idea is that you, um, you have these basic sessions that help you make your ideas more mature. And then you, you end up with a prototype and test with the user. So certainly the sprint book by Google, um, there is, uh, I like, I mean, Marty's book inspired just came out with the second version. And so inspired is a great section on discovery and uh, how to start it, how to do it. Um, it's fairly high level in the sense that Marty doesn't necessarily talk about envision or Axure, but he's letting you know, okay, well, there are different ways to do testing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Jeff Patton has a book called user story mapping Um where he explains like how he really breaks down complicated problems and how he really gets teams to work together and get to shared understanding. And mm-hmm. he has a great section on product discovery in that book. So um, those are three great book resources that, that I, um, that I like. And then there's another, um, there's someone named Dan Olson who has something called the lean product playbook. Um, he also covers uh, discovery and, and, um, getting out and, and getting with users. And he has a background into it where they do kind of the deep research where they're going into users' houses and really getting a sense of, you know, what their daily flow is and, and, and how to really affect and solve problems that maybe they're not solving yet. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's actually so another area that, that I want to touch on is this whole persona, understanding the user. Um, how much of that do you do you find useful? I'm personally not a huge fan of personas as they come out of, say, brand marketing, things like Soccer Mom and, and those concepts, mm -hmm. um, mainly because any given piece of software could be used by just a variety of different people. I mean, if you think about buying insurance, you know, most people carry some form of, of car insurance. Well, your persona is everyone. So right. I think what you're, what you're really thinking about is someone who's buying, you know, car insurance in a certain you know, price range who has a certain driving record, you know? And so your personas get a little bit more practical. And when you go out to do user testing, you, you can sort of find these people and you can feel more confident about the software serving these people um, because it's more, um, I like these activity or task-based personas. Because mm. we know that people, there are going to be a lot of people who go through the divorce process. Mm -hmm. But should I target the 20-something person or the 40-something person? You know, divorce happens at all different ages. I mean, right. same with sort of um, having your first baby. You know, people are doing this at such a wide variety of ages and mm. a wide variety of, of social and economic statuses that these these personas aren't that helpful, but if you go to a site like Baby Center, it's, it, it knows that you're in week three of being pregnant. Mm. Well, here's what you can expect. Well, here's mm. week nine. And so they've got this whole kind of um, activity, more pra practical nice. way of, of talking to their users. And, and the user who's 22 or the user who's 42 is getting incredibly valuable information from the, from the email about their three-week three week old or you know that kind of thing. And so I think that's the... That's my approach to personas, is, is, and that actually ties nicely to the software because in software you build features and, and activities that people do to accomplish their goals. And if you're already started with, well, people want car insurance or people need information about their three-week-old, um, you know, they tie together nicely. There's not such a big gap between, well, I've got soccer mom and I've got this other persona, and they're all doing this activity, so what's the difference between these users? Well, mm -hmm. these days, not as, there's not as much difference. You know, people are on the move with iPhones and, and Android phones and they're, you know, at their, their computer and it's, um, everybody's got kind of this business users are more like consumers. So I find users and, and the way they use technology is becoming more similar, but they still have a lot of unsolved problems. Mm -hmm. and, and if we focus on the problems and build a software around that, then that's a better way to think about personas. Maybe it's problem-based personas. Mm -hmm. Well, think yeah. of the good names. Actually, that that's actually a, a really good segue into um, one other thing I wanted to to mention before we wrap up was this whole notion. Uh, I think of again, a lot of engineers are focused on coming up with solutions. Uh, one thing that uh, Marty mentioned in the class that I took from him was that we want people to to fall in love with the problem, not their solutions. And it sounds really weird at first, uh, but when I thought about it, what, he, what he's really saying is that it's really important to understand and appreciate the problem you're trying to solve rather than jump to a solution and get all, you know, fixated on that. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, and to take that a further step is I can find that teams will agree on the problem much sooner than they ever will on agreeing on a solution. In fact, some teams will never agree on a solution. I, I tell product teams, you should never expect that all of you in this room will agree on the solution. Um, but you should all agree on the problem. Mm. And if you don't agree on the problem, uh, you'll actually never be able to create a valid solution. And wow. so agreement on the problem, most teams start talking about solutions and, and really solutions of problems, they get kind of intermixed and, and they have arguments about solutions. But, but if they find a common vocabulary and they find common ground about the problem, arguing about the solution becomes less um, antagonistic. Mm. And because the solution is just one possible way to solve that problem. And so if you believe in problems, then you know that there are probably multiple solutions out there. Mm. You know, if I want to get a quick message to somebody, you know, somebody might have said, look, Jim, we need to build text messaging, you know, as a feature for our company so we can get to people right away. And when I hear that as a, product team, I'm thinking, I'm going to recast that. What the person said is the solution part is text message. The problem part is I want to get something to my users quickly, wherever they are. 
And so, well, I've got text message, I've got push notifications. Well, frankly, I can call them. I mean, that may not be appropriate, but I, now I'm starting to think about all the ways I can communicate quickly wherever my users are, not just text message. Because I could have delivered a text message and then the person who asked for it, they really just had an off day and they said, well, I really wanted push notifications. Didn't you know that? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> right? So even though people tell you they want text notifications, they really want a quick way to get in touch with the users wherever they are. And if you talk about it that way, you open up multiple solutions and, and you're much more likely to find the right solution sooner. You'll mm -hmm. find it eventually, but this day, these days competitors can spring up so quickly that you're not guaranteed of that extra time anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, that's a real good. And, and I, I think that's one of those underrated uh, sort of skills is to kind of zoom out and say, what is the problem we're trying to solve? Right. I think that that takes patience. It takes that ability to, to have that perspective, um, you know, rather than saying, you know, this is a feature set we've got to build, uh, you know, to say, actually, here's a list of problems we have to solve. You know, the feature set comes afterwards. I mean, it seems obvious. And, you know, you'd think that, you know, people, very, very intelligent people would think that way. But I think oftentimes... Uh, as engineers, we get fixated on coming up with that feature list uh, rather than, you know, kind of focusing on the problems that we're trying to solve. And uh, I think it, it requires somebody like a discovery coach to help a team do that. Changing culture and changing mentality does take some outside influence, I've found, where mm -hmm. I can speak truth to power you know, and then eventually these teams can do that same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And actually that culture thing uh, that you brought up is, is super important. In fact, that's one of the things that I'm focusing on more and more these days is how do we create that culture? And it's one of those elusive things that, you know, it's hard to, you know, it's pe people feel like you either have the culture, or you don't have the culture, but it turns out that there are certain ingredients uh, in a, in a good culture. And one of them that, that Marty touched on is you want missionaries, not mercenaries. Um, and if you have a culture where teams are told a feature set to build, you're kind of, you're, you're, you're guiding them into becoming mercenaries. It's like, you, you know, they're, they're just expected to do what they're told. Uh, and even if they come in with that missionary mindset over time, I find that, you know, because I've been there myself, right? I used to be a, a, a software developer and I was a contractor for many, many years. Uh, and I found myself becoming a mercenary, uh, even though that wasn't my intent, because oftentimes I wasn't asked for feedback. I wasn't asked to really understand the problem. I was just given a feature to build and all the specifications around that feature. Uh, so I, I find that this whole discovery uh, sort of helps engender that that missionary mindset would you agree yeah because it's it's getting buy-in the honest and old-fashioned way which is through exposure to the concept in the early days and then also seeing real evidence that the concept is interesting and works and so you know if if you find teams that don't want to build concepts that users like and that work for the company they just want to build the newest neatest technology that may also be a signal that, that your team is not a, a missionary, that they're not necessarily bought into your company goals, mm -hmm. whether it's selling insurance or creating apps for, for theme parks or, you know, all kinds of interesting things out there, you know, knowing and, and, and believing in that, that mission. Um, I mean, certainly the, the having that interest in the technology to push the envelope and, and to make it scalable and to make it really robust and reliable, um, is, is it a hallmark of great engineering teams? Um, another hallmark of great engineering teams is that when they are missionaries, they can often make decisions and think about the product the way that the whole product team would. Mm -hmm. And so your conversations about the product go to a whole another level, you know, the much more interesting level. And, and, and you might even look forward to the product manager or designer walking over to your desk. You know, that's the goal, right? You want, them to, you want them to come over and you can have this discussion about the product and, and, and you might suggest and ask those, you know, well, what, about, what did you mean when we did this? And, and you start to read each other's minds when you're missionaries and you've been involved in the discovery process. Mm -hmm. and, and that's, um, you know, I think that can, 
it, I think it results in better software because I know there's so many decisions that engineers have to make that, that the business folks don't have time or, or the insight to necessarily make. And, mm-hmm. and I think um, as missionaries, these decisions are easier um, and, and the conversations about them are easier. And yeah, I think the end, of, the end quality of the software is, is it can be higher as well when you believe in what you're doing. And, and that just starts in the very beginning. I think the whole agile movement has been a great thing for product development. And, and I think product discovery is taking it one step further. Um, so Jim, I, I really want to thank you for, for spending this time with me. Um, and I think it's going to be of, of great use. I, I think, I personally think this product discovery is really the next frontier uh, for product development and, you know, more innovation. Uh, I think agile development's gotten us quite far, uh, but I think it's at that point where it needs, you know, it, it needs to go to a, a whole different level, a, a whole new uh, upgrade, if you will. Uh, and I think product discovery is definitely the next frontier for that. So thank you very much for spending cool. this time. Uh, and I'm hoping that we can continue this conversation at a later point. Sure. Thanks, Armand. I think this is um, it's a lot of fun. I think it's sort of the, it's perhaps the, the chocolate and peanut butter of, of product development is to have you know, high-functioning agile development combined with sort of high-functioning discovery. And, and um, so, yeah, it, it's a great combination. I agree. Excellent. Well, you have a great week, Jim, and, um, and we'll catch up later. Take care. Thank you. You too. All right. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Jim Morris, Discovery Coach in the San Francisco Bay Area. Please check out the show notes for all the things that we talked about in this episode. And also be sure to subscribe if you enjoy these topics about product discovery and delivery. Until next time.